0: My first real job was at Hollister. Anybody familiar with that clothing store? Like most brick and mortar stores, it's not nearly as prominent as it was in previous years. But if you're unfamiliar, Hollister is a clothing brand that specializes in California and surf inspired clothing. Uh, It's marketed to teens who live nowhere near the beach, but who do shop in malls. But Hollister is so much more than just a clothing brand it's an experience. Maybe you yourself have experienced it. You're just minding your own business, walking through the mall, you know, just a good day. Like, you know, when we used to walk through malls just for fun and you walk past the front of the store and you're just overwhelmed with the smell of cheap cologne and it smells like maybe it's named after beaches in California. Maybe you went even a step further than just being overwhelmed on the outside of the store and you actually entered into the store. Maybe somebody dragged you in there and you're walking around the store and you slam your knee into a table because it is entirely too dark in there, which brings up other problems, like you get home and realize that the shirt you just bought is a way different color than than what you thought it was when you are in the store because it is the darkest store. I don't even know how it's legal for it to be that dark in Hollister. Or maybe you walked around the store for a little bit and you said, you know what, this store is not for me, and you found those, those leather chairs that have no business being as comfortable as they are and you watch the live stream that they have of the beach at that very moment, which is easily the coolest thing about Hollister, the store. I used to take my break when I would get a break from my job in there. I'd go sit there and I just watch the beach because that's the coolest thing about the store. What many may not know about Hollister is that behind the vibes, behind the aesthetic, there is a very clear caste system that operates in Hollister. There's an upper class and there's a lower class and this is how it operates. The job title of model refers to the people who are hot enough to be seen by the general public who comes into the store. And I know what you're thinking, and that's really what they call that job. They are called models. And a model's responsibilities include uh, overseeing the fitting rooms, spraying that cheap cologne all throughout the store once every hour, uh, taking people through the cash register process so that they can pay for their items, folding clothes periodically, And overall, just being the eye candy that is in the store and is hot enough to be seen by the people who shop at Hollister, and as such, they are inherently better than the lowly impact worker. Now, impact refers to the people who are hired by Hollister but are hidden in the back room. They are the uggos who have to go into the stock room, and an impact's uh, job responsibilities include going to a little scanner gun and looking on the computer and seeing what people have bought from the store in the last hour or so, and then going through the stock room to these huge closet folded rolling bays, finding the item, scanning that item, throwing it out into the hallway, onto the floor. It's very gross. And then another impact person will come and grab that item, fold that item, and get that item ready to be put placed back on the sales floor. And so impacts are hidden in the back and they are not allowed to come out onto the sales floor for fear of being Scene, now, I learned something about myself working at Hollister, and what I learned is that I am right on the border between being hot and ugly. I don't know which side of that line I fall on, that's for you at home to decide, but I fall right on that line of hot and ugly, and I learned that because I applied at Hollister to be a model, I didn't really know what they mean meant when I filled out the application, but I was like, model, that sounds easy, sounds whatever, I don't know what impact means, um, so let's be a model. And then I was hired as a model. Got, called me on the phone, offered me the job, said come into orientation. And so I go in for training and for orientation. And the hiring manager apparently didn't realize that she didn't hire enough impacts and hire too many models. Or she realized that I'm only good looking out in the bright lights of the mall food court where my job interview actually took place. And in the darkness of the Hollister store, I'm ugly. Or maybe that's not what she realized at all. But whatever the case, on that first day she was like, you know what, let's move you to impact. And so I was trained as impact, I operated as an impact for several years, but in the computer I was still marked as model. Now something you may know about retail jobs in general is that there is an incredibly high turnover rate. And that wasn't just true of the people getting paid minimum wage, that was true even of management. At my my time in Hollister, I worked there for three years throughout high school and then a few summers during college. And in that time, I worked under no less than 10 different managers. And so one day, one of those managers came in. He was kind of the new guy at that time. And he showed up a little bit before me. And he showed up for his shift, kind of was getting settled. And I came in, checked in with him before my shift actually started. And I don't know if he looked at the computer and saw, you know what, this guy is marked as a model and didn't know that I actually work as impact. Or if he took one look at me and realized like, this guy is way too hot to be an impact. I'm gonna assume it was the second one, but probably not. Um, But in any case, he put me to work on the sales floor as a model. And I learned a few things that day. The first being, the model's job is incredibly easy. They had to do way easier work than an impact had to do for the same amount of pain. It's incredible the amount of hot person privilege that they had in their lives. The second thing I learned is that I quickly felt like I didn't belong anywhere. I was out on the sales floor doing model tasks and they were crazy easy, had a pretty good time, but all the other models were giving me dirty looks like, how dare this lower class citizen in the kingdom of Hollister come out here on our sales floor? How dare this peasant be in our presence? But the same thing happened with my impact friends. The people that I had worked with for years gave me dirty looks like they looked at me as a class trader, like, how dare he go? Be with the bourgeois models out on the sales floor. And so I quickly felt like I had nowhere that I belonged. I felt like I was caught in between two worlds. And my question for us this morning is, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt caught between two worlds? Like you don't fully belong to either side, that, that there's just not a place where you feel like you fit. And I think that if we are followers of Jesus, we should be very familiar with that feeling. That that by definition, following Jesus will lead us into that feeling of feeling disjointed or not fully being comfortable or feeling like we belong in the world that we find ourselves in. See, but the term following Jesus means something very specific. A lot of us sometimes think of following Jesus as we believe certain things about Jesus. We have these ideas about who Jesus is, and we believe the right things about him. Others of us, sometimes we maybe go beyond just simple belief in Jesus and we feel certain things about Jesus. We have certain affections for Jesus. So we believe certain things about him and we feel certain things about him. But what I've learned to call true apprenticeship to Jesus leads us beyond both of those things. Both of those things are important. There are things that we should believe about Jesus because they are true. And Believing those things about him and his nature and his character should lead us to feel certain things toward him. We should have affections for Jesus. We should love Jesus, but it should not stop at those things. True apprenticeship to Jesus should lead us to live a certain way. True apprenticeship to Jesus leads us beyond our belief. It leads us beyond feelings, and it leads us into action. It leads us into living our lives a certain way. True apprenticeship to Jesus should affect every area of our lives. Every single one. There's no area of our life where we are free to think what we want, to do whatever feels right to us. True apprenticeship to Jesus should affect every single aspect of our life. It should affect who we marry. It should affect how we raise our kids. It should affect how we vote. It should affect how we view our work. It should affect how we view government. It should affect every single area of our lives, and it should affect how we act, that we begin to do things differently. We spend our time differently. We spend our money differently. We hang out with different people. We view relationships in a different way. We we have a different view, and we do things differently than the world around us. And when we do things differently than the world around us, we're ultimately going to start to feel that feeling, like we don't fully belong, like we're caught between worlds. Living our lives as apprentices to Jesus should lead us to not feel comfortable in either political party or even in a third uh, independent party. It should challenge our beliefs about how the country is run, about how the economy is run, about what laws are enforced, about who our laws protect, about what true justice looks like. It should affect everything that we do. As Pastor Rich Velotus says, any person who fits neatly in a political party does not fit neatly in the kingdom of God. But it's not just politics. Apprentices to Jesus shouldn't feel comfortable in the world as it is. We shouldn't feel at home in our toxic culture. We shouldn't feel at home in how divisive our politics can be. We shouldn't be at home with the default views on sexuality, about family, about friendships, about our media consumption, about how we spend our time and money. None of these things should be comfortable. The default view of society all around us should be problematic for the apprentice of Jesus. So if we should feel uncomfortable, if we, when we do feel uncomfortable, when we feel not at home, what is the solution? Do we live in a bubble, get rid of all of our devices, move out into the desert, move out and live off the land? cut off contact with everyone and just be, be hermits or, or things like that. I don't, I don't suggest that. Maybe some of you maybe should do that, but I don't think that that's necessarily what we should do, and I don't either think that that's what Jesus would teach. Instead, I believe that we are called to occupy this tension between the two worlds. Now, this tension, theologians throughout the years have called it the already and the not yet. And I believe that we are called to occupy that space between the already and the not yet. And what that that phrase refers to is that there are aspects of the kingdom of God, what Jesus taught and what he called the kingdom of God that are happening right now all around us. But there's also an aspect of it that is not yet fully realized. And so we are in a place and time in between the two. We know that the world is not how God intends it to be but we also know that a better world is possible. We know that because of Jesus, we have access to God's power, that through what Jesus taught, through what Jesus did while he was on earth, we are able to work with Jesus to make that better world possible. Jesus says as much in what we now call the Lord's Prayer. He says, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we know we shouldn't feel completely at home on earth where we find ourselves right now, and we know that that the full reality of the kingdom is not yet, we're in the already, but we're still not yet there, what are we, the church, called to do? The church as a community is called to be a sign of the world to come. See, the church is a visible sign of an unseen reality. God's kingdom is unseen. God's kingdom is happening everywhere all at once at all times. It's all around us, but it doesn't always seem like it. And the church's job is to be the visible sign that it is going on that God's kingdom is already here. We are a sign we are to be a sign of the world to come. And I know that in our time and in, in how the world looks right now, it doesn't seem like God's kingdom is a reality now. We watch the news, we we go on our social media, all of those things, and it seems like the world is just bad and that God's kingdom is not a reality right now. But I believe that that means that our job as the church has never been more important and it's never been more clear that we are to be a sign of the world to come and we are to live more in line with that world than we are to live in line with the world as it is. And so the question for us this morning is how? How do we become more like that world rather than the world as it is. How do we live in line with God's kingdom now rather than how the world is on its own? I believe that Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30 gives us a few ideas, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So follow along in your Bible with me. Paul writes, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst Of it. There's a lot of great stuff in there, and we're going to get into it and and what it all means for us. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to understand why Paul said this to the specific people that he did. About 10 years before writing this letter, Paul had started the church in Philippi. And so now 10 years has passed, it's been a while since he's seen them. And so he's writing to them to encourage them, to thank them for their support of him throughout the years to let them know about a few things that are going on, to encourage them in their faith, and to warn them about some things that they should avoid. And ultimately, Paul is doing all of these things, writing this letter while imprisoned in Rome. And so then he encourages the Philippians to live as citizens of heaven while their residence is still on earth. And the Philippians, I think, would understand what Paul was saying better than almost anyone else. Why? The answer is because Philippi Philippi was a Roman colony. They were a military colony of Rome. And so even though they were very far away from Rome, over a thousand miles separated from Rome, they operated as if they were all Roman citizens. They had an autonomous government. They didn't have to pay tribute. And ultimately, they operated as if they lived in Italy. And so what Paul's saying is that that same concept is at work in their lives as followers of Jesus, that that as they're located physically in Macedonia, but yet their citizenship is in Rome, the same is true that as they occupy and are placed in a specific time at a specific place on earth, their true citizenship isn't on earth. Their true citizenship is in heaven. And the same thing is true for us. For most of us watching right now, that place that we are located in is New Mexico. Likely for you, it's Las Cruces, but we, there's many people who may be watching from anywhere. And regardless of where we're located physically, we're also all located in a specific time. And unfortunately for us, that time is the insanity that has been the year 2020. And so we're all located in a place at a specific time. And yet, regardless of where we actually live, regardless of when we actually live, if we are followers of Jesus... We are called to not have our primary citizenship be here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, it's worth noting that if you have a different Bible translation, verse 27 probably looks a lot different for you. Maybe you flip there on your own as I was reading it and you're like, wow, this guy is reading the wrong passage or I turned the wrong place or he's just making things up as he goes. But they are very different in what they say. For example, the NASB begins verse 27 like this. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word citizenship or citizens doesn't show up at all. So why are so many different translations so different in this one verse and which one is right? And the answer to which one is right is yes. Let me tell you why. The actual Greek word used here is polotumai. I probably said that wrong, but I want us all to say it together. And if I'm wrong, that means that you'll be wrong too. So, you know, solidarity. Um, so let's say that all together on the count of three. One, two, three. Poletumai. Now, I know we all love Greek words, and that was a lot of fun, but what that word actually means is basically citizenship, to conduct yourself as a member of a body, whether that be a community, a city, a church. That Greek word means to conduct yourself as someone who belongs to a group, and it's ultimately where we get our word politics or political. And so the question for us then, as that verse begins, talking about citizenship and conducting yourself as if you belong to a group of people, which is true for all of us, the question then becomes, as members of a body, as members of a community, as members and and people of movement, church, what does it look like to live as a good citizen of heaven while we are placed on earth? And so there's three areas I want to focus on this morning that should be present in the life of an apprentice of Jesus and a citizen of heaven. And the first is that citizens of heaven are people of the Spirit. Paul starts verse 27 by saying, live in a manner worthy of the good news. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to live worthy of the good news? And i I thought a lot about this point. I I did a lot of research. I had a lot of ideas of of things to say, and I was going to give you some more Greek words because we all love that, and I was going to get into some some Roman history because we also love that even more. Um, And after thinking about it a lot, I realized that this point was understood already by my three-year-old daughter. Something cool we do as Movement Church is anytime we do a baby dedication, we give that baby and its family a copy of the Bible App for Kids Storybook Bible. And so my daughter, Cecilia, has one, and she absolutely loves it. She reads it every day because she is a great citizen of heaven. And its binding is falling completely apart. It's hardly staying together. We've taped it and retaped it. There's pages that have been ripped out and taped and re-ripped. It has seen a lot of mileage. And we still read it. And there is a passage in there that gets me every time. I absolutely love it. And I'd like to read that to you this morning. And it says this, Jesus traveled teaching about the kingdom of heaven and crowds followed him. They didn't know yet that Jesus is the king, but he taught them how to live as people of his kingdom. And that's the question we're really wrestling with this morning, right? How do we live as people of God? How do we live as people of his kingdom? How do we be a good citizen of heaven? The passage goes on and it, it goes on with the words of Jesus. And Jesus says this, people do good because of the good in their hearts. People do evil when evil is in their hearts. God wants to make your heart like his heart. And that last line gets me every single time. That is the simplest and best way to understand what it means to be a person of the Spirit. That can be kind of a church word and get a little bit confusing. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit or live as a person of the Spirit? All it means is exactly what it says in the kids' Bible. That being a person of the Spirit means that you are someone who is in the process of allowing God to make your heart like his heart. It means that you love the things he loves. It means that you are grieved by the things that he is grieved by. And ultimately, it means that you do the things that he would do. Secondly, citizens of heaven attempt to bring heaven's answers to earth's struggles. Twice in the three verses that we looked at, Paul mentions struggling or fighting. At the end of verse 27, he says that he is confident that the Philippians are fighting together for the faith. And then in verse 30, he says, we are in this struggle together. Now, what is all this fighting about? Why all this struggle? Why all this fight? Is is Paul encouraging them to to be involved in the culture wars? Is he inviting us to take America back for God? Is he he encouraging the believers to to seek political power? Ultimately, I think it's important for us to remember that, that Paul himself wasn't even trying to make Rome A a Christian Empire Uh, this was a man who was in chains by the Empire this was a man who was ultimately executed by the state and so I don't think he was encouraging Christians to seek out political power but if that's not what it was if if that's not what Paul is asking the church to do and if that's not what Paul's asking us to do then what is the struggle what is the fight for the faith I believe that the struggle that Paul was calling us to be a part of is to believe that a better world is possible and then to work to make that better world a reality. I believe that we are invited to make the Lord's Prayer a reality. That when Jesus prayed, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that wasn't just a prayer for Jesus, that that was an, in, an invitation to all of us who call ourselves apprenticeship uh, apprentices of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I often struggle to even believe that a better world is possible. And yet Paul, in the face of real persecution, encourages the Philippians to work and struggle for the good news. See, the reality is that the kingdom of God is good news, and it is worth struggling for. It is worth struggling against the darkness and evil that surrounds us in this present age. G.E. Ladd says it this way, one of the main tasks of the church is to display in this present age the fellowship and life of the age to come. See, Paul certainly believed that a better world was possible. And not only that it was possible, but also that, that followers of Jesus had a responsibility and a calling to make that better world a reality here and now. And that challenge extends across time to those of us who are part of the church today, that we attempt to bring heaven's answers to earth's struggles. Lastly, citizens of heaven are strengthened in community. Paul tells the Philippians, whether he gets to see them in person again or only hears about them, that he hopes that they are standing together with one spirit and one purpose. And that sounds amazing, right? Let's have one spirit. Let's have one purpose. Let's be unified. Let's, let's get on it. Let's get on it together. Um, but the reality is, is that in any community of people, that doesn't always happen. In any community of people, there's going to be differences of opinion. There's always going to be disagreements. And sometimes those disagreements can be very strong, very passionate about the things that we believe and the things that we feel. And sometimes those differences of opinions are even over matters of faith, that we disagree about things in the Bible, about things that the Bible says. And I think we have this temptation sometimes to believe that we are unique in that, that we look at our, our church right now, and we look at the the church right now, and we look at our, our political climate and things like that, and we look, wow, we are more divided than we've ever been. But I think that, that Paul's life and Paul's letters offer a, a little bit of a different story to that. See, Paul wrote to the various churches that he started, and the letters that he wrote make up more than half of the New Testament. And a majority of those letters, Paul felt compelled to write specifically because the churches were fighting, because conflict was happening, because there were differences of opinions within those bodies. And so Paul wrote all these letters to tell the churches to stop fighting. In every single letter, Paul addresses those issues. And yet, despite all that fighting, despite all the issues, Paul continues to call for unity, to say, to continue to say things like he does in Philippians, that, that, that the believer should be of one purpose and one spirit. And what that tells me is that disagreements will happen, but division doesn't have to. I want to say that again, mostly so that it will sink into my own personal life and so that I can get it into my own heart, that disagreements will happen, but division doesn't have to. As a collection of individuals, any church, anywhere, any group of people, there will be disagreements. We will never agree about everything. But as a community of faith, we can be, as Paul encourages us to be, of one spirit with a shared purpose. We can be strengthened through community. So the question I have for all of us this morning, myself included, is what might each of these characteristics look like in our lives? I want to wrap up our time together exploring exactly that. What might each of these look like in your daily life? The first, what would it look like for you to be a person of the Spirit? Now, this one we don't really have to think too hard about or guess at, like maybe it's this, maybe it's that, because Paul actually writes out in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 exactly what a person of the Spirit looks like. He says this, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is what it looks like when God is making your heart like his heart. This is what it looks like when you are a person of the Spirit. It looks like loving your neighbor as yourself, even the neighbor who plays music late into the night, even the neighbor who calls codes on you for your weeds, even the neighbor who has those dogs who never stop barking. It looks like choosing joy regardless of how bleak things may look in your personal life, regardless of the latest virus projections, regardless of whatever diagnosis you may be facing, regardless of what people have said about you. It looks like choosing joy in the midst of those situations and living in a place of joy in our Heavenly Father. It looks like seeking peace, not only with our friends and the people that we agree with, but seeking peace with our enemies and the people that we disagree with. Even the people that we disagree with on Facebook. Of all places. And it also looks like finding rest for our souls and unhurrying and finding that peace that only comes from God. It looks like patience with those we disagree with, even the people that we disagree with on social media. It looks like being kind to that obnoxious co worker or the person who cuts us off in traffic. That one's for me. It looks like being good to those who can never repay you for the good things that you do for them. It looks like being faithful to your spouse or your church or the people who rely on you. It looks like exercising self-control in your spending, in your online shopping, in what you choose to eat, in what you choose to post. And so I know I hear a lot of these examples, and even to me, it sounds like, man, that is impossible. I go down that list, treat the fruit of the Spirit as a checklist, and on an absolute good day when I'm I'm just praying a lot and I'm in in the Word, maybe I get four out of the eight some more advanced saints in here around us. Maybe you've been an apprentice to Jesus for a lot longer. Maybe you're hitting six, seven, maybe you get eight and and, you you don't need to listen to anything that I'm saying. Others of us, maybe you're only hitting one or two out of the eight fruit of the Spirit. The point is, is that none of us are perfect and we're all on this same journey of allowing God to make our hearts like his heart. But when we do, when we allow the Spirit to work within us, it produces these fruit that become obvious to those around us, and it gives us a head start on the second characteristic. What would it look like in your life to bring heaven's answers to earth's struggles? See, this one, I think we tend to, to think of the big at the neglect of the small. We start thinking, I'm going to change the world. Let's change the world. Let's make things better. Let's do this. That's and those are all noble goals. It's, it's great to want to change the world and make things better. But what does that actually look like? What does it even mean to change the world? And I suggest that the best way to change the world, the best way to make God's reality uh, a reality on earth for us, is in the boring, mundane, everyday, faithful obedience to God in our life with Jesus. See, we, we must constantly be asking ourselves, does my family, does my neighborhood, does my relationship, does my uh, work environment, do these things look more like the world as it is, or does it look more like the world as God would have it to be? And then we answer that question, we fill in the blank, we answer that question, and then we follow Jesus into those realms, and we do the work of making those areas more like God would have them to be. Now, the first two characteristics are more individual in nature. Uh, We we are called to be a people of the Spirit collectively, but we work that out in our lives individually. Uh, We work to make heaven's answers come to earth's struggles. We can do that as a church, but we can also work that out in our individual lives. But the third characteristic is more communal in nature. The last characteristic of a citizen of heaven is to be strengthened through community and I believe it's very fitting that it comes after those first two. See, endeavoring to live a, a Spirit-led life, to be a person of the Spirit, it can be exhausting. Getting things right, it's hard work, and it's work we must rely on Jesus for. But even when we get it right, it's tiring. I believe that, that, that challenging our world as it is, living in line with the world that is to come, rather than the world as it is, it is hard work. There is darkness, and there is oppression, and there is hurt, and pain all around us. And so the question is, how do we recharge and rejuvenate in the face of doing those things? As we live out that calling, how do we recharge? As we said earlier, we are strengthened through community. One of the greatest gifts in our relationship to Jesus, in our apprenticeship to Jesus, is other people. That we are strengthened through the loving community that we find ourselves in. We are strengthened through being surrounded by other people. People, And I know it's weird to say that right now in a season where we are ordered to not be surrounded by other people, where it's not a great idea to be surrounded by other people. And this particular one, the practical side of it, may look different right now than it would in general. Um, That we're in a season right now where community will take added creativity, Um, but community right now, being strengthened through community right now, looks like gathering digitally like we are right now. It looks like Zoom meetings with people in your lives. It looks like reaching out with a text message or a phone call to someone in your life that you care about. Regardless of the specific season that we find ourselves in, we are strengthened through community by doing the work of relationship, the work of checking in on our friends who are going through a hard time, the work of praying for the needs that we know the people that we we know and love are going through, Every good thing that God gives us in our lives is not for our benefit alone, but to bless other people with. This principle begins very early in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham that he is blessed to be a blessing. And that same concept is true all throughout scripture and on into our lives, that we are blessed to be a blessing. If you're blessed financially, you are blessed financially, not so that you can have a nice house and do all these nice things. You are blessed financially so that you can give that money away and bless someone else with that money. If you are blessed with a house, it is so that you can be open in that house to practice hospitality, to share a meal around your table, to share a room with someone who doesn't have a place to live. We are blessed. If you're blessed with a house, you are blessed to share that house with other people. If you are blessed with health, you are blessed with health so that you can serve alongside other people, that you can use your energy and your health and your body to serve other people. People, every single blessing, fill in the blank. Think of a good thing that you have in your life. You have been given that good thing in your life, that blessing, so that you can be a blessing to someone else. And as we give of ourselves, as we bless other people with what we've been blessed with, we find that we are even more blessed, that we are strengthened in community. As we love others, as we would have them love us, we are blessed by giving of ourselves. We are recharged and rejuvenated by giving of ourselves and by the loving community around us. That is what it means to be strengthened through community. And I want to close this morning by just having us imagine what that would be like together. See, we're firmly placed in a specific time at a specific place. We're firmly placed in the year 2020. We're only about halfway through. There's, it's been a wild one so far, and we got quite a bit of ways to go Um, But imagine with me what it might look like for us to right now in our context to take Paul's advice seriously, to occupy the already while we look forward to the not yet as we live in line with the world that is to come rather than the world as it is. So to close, I have a question. How much different would your life look if you were a person of the Spirit? How much different would your life look if you began to seek to bring heaven's answers to earth's struggles? How much different would your life look if you began to be strengthened through community more than you ever have before? I want you to imagine that with me. What would our church like if we were known as people of the Spirit? What would our church look like if we were known as people who who look to live in line with the world to come rather than the world as it is? What would it look like if if we were known as people who are rejuvenated and are strengthened through community? I believe those things are possible and let's pray to make them a reality. Jesus, thank you that you came to earth and you taught that the kingdom of heaven is active, that it is available to us right now. And I pray that as we go about our daily week, go about our routines, whatever that looks like for us, that we would begin to make Your will, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that we would begin to be people of the spirit, that we would allow you to do the process of making our heart more like your heart. We thank you for all that you've done in our life. I thank you for every blessing that you've given us. And I pray that this week you would show us ways that we can bless others. In your name we pray, amen.